0: In Isaiah chapter 21, and Isaiah 21 is a series of chapters dealing with God's message to the nations, and uh, we're going to see three of these nations mentioned here, but only going to look at one tonight. Isaiah chapter 21, if you don't have a King James Version Bible, look to your neighbor next to you, and if they have one, I'd like you to share it with them, and uh, folks, if you can look around, someone next to you doesn't have one, you share your King James Version Bible with them to help them find their place. Same, amen if you're there. Look at verses 11 and 12. Read them very carefully, and I want you to circle some words tonight before we get into preaching here. We're going to do a study, some preaching, a little bit more preaching, a little more study tonight. Verse 11 The burden of Duma. Circle the word Duma. Circle the word Duma. The burden of Duma. God's word is. In speaking to these groups of people, it was a heavy message. The word burden means something heavy. The burden of Duma, he called it to me out of Sierra. Watchman, circle the word watchman. Watchman, would you notice a question? He called it to me out of Sierra. Watchman, what of the night? Again, watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, the morning cometh. Praise God for that. Amen. But then he didn't finish. The morning cometh, and also the night. If ye will inquire, inquire ye. Return, come. Our Father tonight, so thankful for Heritage Baptist Church. Lord, what an excitement that our teenagers, and this tonight, the one who, the ones you stir, just a cross-section of teenagers that love you and are on fire for the gospel. Many of them born into the church, but thank God they're born again from above. And Lord, they're parents who... I can still remember when they were singles and getting married and their children being born. And Lord, now looking at this upcoming generation of young people, Lord, we give you the glory for that. Please keep their lives pure. Please keep their lives clean. Don't let Satan sift them as wheat, Lord. Help them to be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I pray that you help their parents to be steadfast and help all of us tonight to be steadfast in the work of the ministry. Lord, we've seen so many wonderful days these last few months. God, so many things you're working. We thank you tonight for your people sacrificially pledging $483,000 for the next 12 months for missions. I certainly pray, Lord, that we need to find more missionaries that we can support that are worthy, God, of the work of the support from God's people who will do a great work for God. We need to be sensitive, Lord, to projects that are going on and even partner with some of our missionaries and trying to see new endeavors started. So tonight, Lord, as we look at that, it all comes together with this passage. I know we're off series for, a few, for, for tonight, maybe even next week. But tonight we need to hear from you and the story here in Isaiah 21, the message contained herein. I pray you'll help me tonight. I've not preached from this chapter before. Lord, more than I've studied and prepared, Lord, they need to hear from you. And these are your people and the sheep of your pasture, and I pray that, God, you'd feed their souls. But at the same time as you feed the souls of your people, help me through this, that you would help me to take the oversight and lead your people in the right paths tonight. And we pray this evening that, God, that your people would be loved, and yet your people would be challenged and charged and energized tonight. Meet every need that's here. I don't know every need tonight. I know that, Lord, we've got a myriad of needs, but you meet the needs tonight because your word is able to do so. Bless the service tonight may be. An unforgettable moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As the morning of Tuesday, September 3rd started, and I'm talking about 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, reports... We're flooding the internet, local and national newspapers. The diving boat known as the Concepcion, which has a multi-year history of taking divers out down in the Southern California waters for weekend diving experiences, a 75-foot boat 75-foot vessel, received a report or a call-in at 3.30 a.m. on Labor Day, September 2nd. It was a call of urgency for the Coast Guard to send help. The vessel was on fire. and As things were unfolding, they said there could be as many as 34 people trapped in a berth below. Who were sleeping under there, the majority of them, the majority, if not all of them, were people that had paid an amount of money, some of them family members, some celebrating birthdays, several from the Bay Area here, several who had gone on this expedition many times to do diving underwater, they're just off the Santa Cruz Islands there, people that were trapped, smoke everywhere fire that had encode- totally engulfed the entire vessel. And as far as the captain and the, fi- the four other crew members who survived this disaster, they had no way of getting these people. The ports came in as this boat was anchored there at Platts Harbor, about 20 yards off the coast of Santa Cruz. And it was a very, a very desperate moment, if you can imagine a horrifying moment. This vessel captain had taken this vessel many times. There was an air of confidence that he and the four other crew members had about this experience that the result was that everybody, as far as the crew is concerned, as far as they know from the National Transportation Safety Board's investigation into it, that they felt confident enough that they slept through the night. The agency, after they did their report, this came out a few days later. The agency's preliminary reports that at the time of the fire, five crew members were asleep in berths behind the wheelhouse. One crew member was sleeping in the bunk room where these other 33 were at. The boat was required. I want you to listen to me carefully on this. The boat was required by federal law to have a night watchman who was awake and could alert others to fire Another danger, said NTSB board member Jennifer Holmende. The U.S. Coast Guard captain, Monica Rochester, said, a watchman typically walks through the vessel and checks equipment throughout the night. Let me read, read that again. The watchman typically walks through the vessel and checks equipment through the night. Coast Guard investigators determined, based on early interviews with the crew, that no one was on watch when the blaze broke out. The fire tore through the Concepcion. 34 people perished that evening. There was no watchman available. Family members got reports. The vessel sank. They had to send divers down below to recover. The burn and unrecognizable, and I emphasize the unrecognizable, remains of 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, and 60-year-olds. The boat was required by federal law to have a night watchman who was awake and could alert others to fire. And other dangers. Our passage tonight, if you look at verse 11. in fact, if you look at the entire chapter, the spotlight is on watchmen. In verse 6, in one of there's there's three prophecies we see here, and I'll, I'll talk about them in a little bit here. But in the first prophecy, which was the prophecy concerning the, the fall of Babylon. He said in verse 6, go, set a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. And he did so. We get to verse 11, and we actually see there's two watchmen. There's a watchman of the people of God, who was being beckoned to by a watchman on Mount Seir, who was an Edomite. And he asked the question, and you can imagine this in your mind, shouting across a large area of land, "Watchmen, what of the night? Watchmen, what of the night? And that's our question tonight. What is a watchman supposed to be doing? I want you to notice this evening the responsibility of a watchman. The responsibility of a watchman. When you look up in the Word of God, you always want to start with the Word of God and find out what the Word of God has to say about this, because there's the secular meaning, and then there could be also the scriptural meaning. And there's two different words we find in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, that define for us this word watchman. One word, which is a predominant word that's used in most instances, is it defines a watchman as one who's to look about, to keep watch, to peer into the darkness, to spy, to observe, to watch closely. I will use this word, which is going to be part of my outline tonight. We would say that that definition of a watchman is to do entire surveillance. I was someone who is responsible for doing detailed and entire surveillance. Another definition, which is the word that's being used here in verses 11 and 12, is a definition that says that's even stronger. It implies to keep, to protect, and to even save lives. To keep, to protect... And even save lives. Now we know this from our study of the Bible. And of course the most predominant chapter that we find about watchmen is found in Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33 being the preferred chapter there. Watchmen in the Bible were guards responsible for protecting towns and military installations from surprise enemy attacks and from other potential dangers. Ancient Israelite cities often stationed watchmen on high walls or in watchtowers, okay? So you'd have, for the protection of the city, in many cases, it would also be for the protection of a vineyard. We will read some of that in Scripture tonight. But they were positioned high enough above everything else so they could have clear visibility and the ability to see. I want you to notice this watchman's responsibility. Notice in letter A, I want you to consider the station of the watchman. Now, the station was the post... Or the position where he was required to stand watch. Let me give you some scriptures tonight. In 2 Samuel 1824, David, of course, was in this chapter is is running from is is away from the kingdom and he's he's trying to get away from Absalom. And David has perched himself at a place where there's a watchman. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel 1824, David sat between the two gates, and the watchman went up unto the roof over the gate, unto the wall, and lifted up his eyes, and looked, and behold, a man running down. So we find a story where David is at a place, he's away from home, there's a watchman, that climbed on top of the roof of a dwelling place, and there on the roof, it gave him enough of a vantage point, that was his station, as he looked. The station was a watchtower, a wall of the city in most situations. Whatever it was, I want you to listen tonight, whatever it was, the watchman had to be able to have a 360-degree view wherever he was at. He had to have a 360-degree view wherever he was at. He had to have the ability to be able to look through the entire circumference of the area, not just a partial perimeter. The entire circumference of the area had to be in view. Look at 2 Kings 9, 17. We think about, about a watchman that was watching an area, and he saw Jehu coming, Yehu coming. And the Bible says there stood a watchman on the tower in Jezreel, and he spied the company of Yehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Urim, that was the king king there, he said, Take a horseman and send to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? Now, I want you to notice this. This watchman is on a tower. He wasn't just somebody watching. He had to be a student of what was going on there. He could tell from a distance who that rider was. He looked at a distance, and he saw dust being stirred up in the sand, he could tell he had good sense of hearing. He could hear the galloping of the horses many miles away and could see the dust being stirred up. He even recognized the figure on that horse was Jehu that was coming, probably because of the, of, the, of the uniform that he wore, and there may have been some metal across his uniform that probably glistened in the sun. I mean, the eyes of this man had to be sharp like a hawk. Isaiah 21, 5. Notice what it says here in Isaiah 21, in verse 5. It says, Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, Drink, arise, ye princes, and anoint the shield. I love this, Habakkuk 2.1. Habakkuk said, as he was a little discouraged and complaining about things, and God said, he started to realize God had a message for him. So this is what Habakkuk said. And by the way, this is what you should do when you come to a, a place where you hit a ceiling in your life, you're banging against a wall, and you're wondering, God, what do you want me to do and where do I go? He said this. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am been reproved. You want to know where I'm at for the last... For the last uh, four months here, I've been in a watchtower watching God, waiting on God, for wanting God to tell me, what do you want me to do? What do you want this church to do? I've been on a watchtower for many, many weeks now, just praying and asking God, God, what do you want us to do? I'm very concerned about many, many things going on right now. I'm very burdened about our work, and I've been in this watchtower. And this is where Habakkuk was. He says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the watchtower there. The station or post of the watchman, listen to this, was a vantage point by which he could watch for anyone approaching his city, his vineyard, or property. We see the station, of this, the, this man's station in his responsibility. But I want you to notice his stakeout or the surveillance in his responsibility. His stakeout or the surveillance. I want you to notice what he did there. A stakeout is where you could, might say that that was also his station, but you might also say that was what? What is he supposed to be doing there? What was he supposed to be doing there? And I want you to consider some things tonight, okay? Number one, he had to be vigilant. Notice in chapter 21, would you notice some things about this watchman here? It says in verse, uh, verse 21, uh, verse 6, For thus has the Lord said unto me, Go, said a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. And then notice in verse 8, this watchman, what he says. And he cried, and I'll actually read verse 7 so you understand the context here. Again, this is the prophecy concerning the downfall, of the fall of Babylon later on by the, by the Medes and Persians. And he said... And he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen a couple of asses and a, and, a, and a chariot of camels. Now watch this. This man, whoever this watchman was, he could see from a distance the kind of animals leading, leading this vehicle, and he could tell the vehicle was a chariot, okay, by, by its sound and by probably the dust was being stirred. And he said he hearkened diligently with much heat. He has to be listening. Notice verse 8. And he cried, a lion. Then he said, my Lord, I stand, notice this, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I'm set and my ward whole nights. This watchman we find in Isaiah 21, he is there the entire day and he's there the entire night. He was not an 8 to 5 ham and egg type of guy. He didn't punch in, punch out. He was there in the morning and he was in the night. He had to be vigilant. He had to be awake. He had to be on alert. This man had to be on edge. He didn't have time for conversations. If they had cell phones that day, he would be prohibited from checking social media. He would be prohibited from checking the news. His eyes had to be on the horizon. He had to be listening and watching. It didn't matter if he was tired. It didn't matter if he was sleepy. It didn't matter if he was hungry. He had to be scanning the horizon no matter what. He couldn't be distracted even by the king. His responsibility was to scan the horizon and watching other. Remember I said earlier, he had to be at a vantage point where he could see all 360 degrees around him. He could not take any movement from a distance for granted. And he had to be able to discern if he knew who was approaching and the company with him. I think of Yehu. We saw, he was able to, I think of Yehu, were, this watchman was able to, to, to discern Yehu. I think about the watchman in David's case, he was able to discern Ahimeas and Cushi. He could not take coffee breaks or siesta breaks. He had to watch for the stirring of dust, which indicated a troop was coming. He had to watch and listen for the sound of hooves, whether they were horses, asses, or camels. He had to watch reflection of the sun on metal from a distance. He had to have a well trained eye of the night to detect any form of stealthy movement or anything out of the ordinary. I mean, I I want you to understand tonight, this man had to have night vision. He had to have the ability to see at night and to detect and listen. And if you couldn't see in the dark of night, you had to listen very carefully. He had to have very acute senses and understanding what was going on. This man had to be vigilant. Notice the second thing. He had to be voracious. He had to be truthful, okay? Uh, any movement required action. part. Look at chapter 21, this watchman there reporting about what he saw. He gave an accurate report. He gave a truthful report. Listen, watchmen are not supposed to give a sparse report. I went over, I went over one of the things I was coming with staff this week. We were talking about reporting, and I talked about the importance of reporting and sharing information and communications, things of that nature there. And all of us can improve on that area there. But I want to remind you here, this man could not give sparse reports. You know, we sometimes when we respond to somebody, we might put an emoji on something like that. Right? We'll put a thumbs up saying, hey, I agree with you. That's okay. That's good. Things like that. Uh, you, you couldn't do that if you're watching. You had to give a full, detailed report. You didn't give a story, but you'd have to say something like this I see someone approaching, and this is what I see. You had to give a voracious report, a truthful report. Listen to what Habakkuk said I will write down what he says to me. By the way, when's the last time you wrote down something God said to you? Are you writing down tonight what he's saying to you? I'm just saying tonight, when he, when he, when he did these things, he had, when he saw something, he could not skip details. When he saw something, he could not give his version of what he saw. He had to be truthful and voracious. Hey, he had to be vigilant. He had to be voracious. Hey, listen, he listen, he had to be vigorous. This man could not be a deadhead. How many know what a deadhead is? Amen? He, had to, he couldn't be passive, he had to be excited. He had to be someone that was that was on guard there. He had to be someone passionate about his watch. He had to cry aloud and he had to sound the trumpet. He had to be loud in his report. He could not, he, he had to have a sound of concern or a sound of comfort, one or the other. I mean, notice the report here that we read, and I'll get into this a little bit more in our second point here. But notice the report of this watchman. The watchman said, The morning cometh and the night also. Now, in that he has comfort, but he also has concern. He has conviction, and at the same time, he has consolation for the for the For this report here. And so you'll notice that the watchman had to be vigorous in his reporting. He could not give an uncertain sound. He could not leave any uncertainty in someone's heart about the report he was giving. I'm just saying this man had to be vigorous. We see the responsibility of a watchman. He had a place. He had a station, he had a stakeout, he had to give a report, he had to be voracious, he had to be vigilant, he had to be vigorous. Listen, this man was in it because the safety of a city, the safety of a vineyard was at stake if this man failed. We see this man's responsibility. Notice number two, would you notice this man's report? The report refers to the message of the watchman. Or the answer or the finding of the watching. Go back to Isaiah 21 with me. As I mentioned earlier, Isaiah 21 is a series of chapters. And I think they start after chapter 15 or chapter 16 or so. They start about there and go for several chapters. They're prophecies about the nations. You can't read those sections quickly. But you have to read it to understand what God is doing in world history. By the way, one of the greatest proofs of the Bible is the Word of God is accuracy concerning world history. Yeah, you just study through that, okay? You need to be a world history student to understand some of these things. I mean, you, you, go through, you, can, you can prove to some of the Bible is the Word of God just going to the book of Daniel. And so these prophecies of nations in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 21, it's a prophecy against about the fall of Babylon. Babylon is called the desert of the sea. Babylon back in, back in that time, today is modern day Iran. we overtaken by Persia. We read about the media here. It's called about the Medes who would take over Elam and, and the Medes there. In verses 13 to 17, the prophecy is called the burden upon Arabia. It's the burden of God upon the the Arabs there. It's a prophecy against the dwellers of Kedar. Kedar You know, you read a lot about Kedar. It's talking about the Arabians there, those who dwelt in the desert there. And and they talk about the tents of Kedar and things like that. These were were nomadic men that were traveled many distances. But in verses 11 to 12, which is our context tonight, notice we see the burden of Duma. I want you to see some things about this tonight, this report. I want you to notice specifically the watchman was was, was, he's given a report concerning Duma. Now, uh, I'm going to give you some things that We're going to learn some things that notice, notice number one, we see that this message centers around a community of people. The burden of Duma. He called out of me of sayer Now, the word Duma, I'm going to give you kind of preliminary before I get into this. The word Duma is a play on words. The word Duma means silence, as you'll see in a minute. But God told Isaiah, I want you to make an anagram. An anagram is when you take a word and change words around, okay? Like, for instance, if you, I take the word tea and you move the letters around, you have the word eat. If I take the word stressed and move some letters around, I have the word desserts. Someone said the best solution for when you're stressed is have some desserts, amen? Okay? So you just, it's moving the words around, Okay? The Hebrew word, the Hebrew letter that makes up the word Edom is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. Notice the word Duma, the A is at the end of the word at the end of the word. So what he did was he moved it around. If you move the word, the letter Aleph back to the front of Duma, you have the word Edom. We know who Edom is. Edom describes Esau. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. When Esau parted ways with Jacob, they were amicable. But his descendants, when we get, I think it's chapter 35 or 36 there, we get to that chapter, we read about all the dukes of Edom. And the Edomites, they made their dwelling place Mount Seir. That was a high place known as Petra many years later. Later on, they went from after different conquests and things like that. If you study your history, there the the the, uh, the, the Edomites were known as the Edomians, and they, they were they were the area of of Edom was called Edomia. The most famous of the Edomians was the Herods, the King Herods There, if you remember that, because Herod was an Edomite by blood. And so as things progress, as we get a little further on, we get now, you know, Israel went into captivity, and they're in captivity for 430 years, and the Edomites have become a very strong nation. We read about these dukes and so forth there in, in, in the book of Genesis, and these Edomites became the enemies of Israel. And you work your way down, and notice if you went in, in Numbers chapter 20, verses 17 21, we have, after we get out of Genesis, we have one of the first instances there of how the king of Edom... Uh, became, a th- a, became, a, became a problem to the side of Moses and the Israelites. And it's here as Israel is making their way that the king of Edom, remember this, refused passage to Israel through their area. There, look at with me, Numbers chapter 20, verses 17 to 21. He said, "Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards. Neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand or to the left until we pass to the borders." Now I love that verse there because Moses basically saying, "Listen, we won't cause you trouble. Please let us have passage. Please let us go through." He, he did the right thing. He asked for permission. Okay, he was being very courteous. He was not trying to bypass things, he knew he'd have some trouble there, he would, there was these one, one of the many men of the, the nations of the mountains that they had to deal with, the Canaanites were a dweller in the mountains, and they had to deal with them, and the men, sons of Anakin, people like that, and the Edomites were a different na- kind of nation there, and he went to him, he says, please let us pass through, we won't go through your fields, we won't go through your vineyards, we won't drink your water from your wells, we, we'll, we'll mind our way, we'll go by the King's Highway, which was a major thorough, thoroughfare that people went through, and Moses was hoping that he would get permission to go through the king's highway. And here's what the king of Edom said in verse 18. Thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come again against thee with the sword. And the children of Israel said unto him, we will go by the highway. And if, and, and if I and my cattle drink of the, of the water, I will, then I will pay for it. I will only, without doing anything else, go through all my feet. He says, listen, if we even have to drink, if somebody touch your water, we'll pay for it. Please, we just, don't make us go around roundabout way. I've got three million people with me. I've got children and elderly and people that are sick. Don't, don't make us go another way. Listen, if somebody, by chance, they're thirsty, they touch water, we'll pay for it. We've got money. We'll take care of that. But the king of Edom, this is what he said in verse 21. Thus, Edom... Uh, verse 20 he said thou shalt not go through and Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand and Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border wherefore Israel turned away from him Edom was hostile against Israel they were adversarial to Israel Edom and Esau are always a picture of the flesh the flesh lusteth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These two are contrary one to the other. Yes, Esau and Jacob had the same parents, but they had two different natures. One represents a picture of the spirit, one's a picture of the, of the flesh. Edom is a picture of the flesh. Now notice, if you would that the trouble just didn't end there. Later on, we read about King Saul and King David having conquests over the Edomites. In fact, we read about Joab conquering 10,000 Edomite soldiers. The Edomites had a deep-seated hatred against the israelites the edomites hated them we see a message to the to this this country of edom edom as we get here to chapter 21 of isaiah now israel is much more advanced during this time the king on the throne at this time may have been hezekiah when this all happened or could have been king ahaz or king hezekiah and so the edomites this message the edomites are well occupying mount Seir, and they're crying out here in verse 11 they're saying they say Watchmen, what of the night Watchmen, what of the night? So, this this message that God has here begins with a message that God has this burden, this heaviness concerning Edom. Now, notice if you would, as we continue on, we see this community. Notice this message was to a specific group of people. It was to the Edomites. It wasn't to the Arabians. It wasn't to the Babylonians. It wasn't to Israel. It was to a specific group of people. Please understand something tonight. When we study the messages of God, we study how God speaks. God speaks to people. God does not. Now, the only time we have God speaking through an animal probably was the situation having to do uh, later on in Numbers there with the prophet with the prophet Balaam and God spoke through his donkey there. But God's message is to a people. God has a message for our homes. God has a message for our church. God has a message for us individually. I think, of, I think of Ehud as he came to King Eglon. He said to him, I have a message from God to thee. I think about the fact that God has a message to his church each and every week. It's a church that's a vital message, an encouraging message. I think about the fact that God has a message to the world. He has a message to the nation. He has a message for the world to get saved. Uh, God God used uh, had a message to cities. I think of Jonah going to Nineveh and he went to Nineveh and brought Nineveh a message. I think about Peter going to Jerusalem and bringing Jerusalem a message. I think about Paul going to Derby and Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus, many other places. God had a message for those cities. He has a message for individuals. Jesus had a message to Zacchaeus. Jesus had a message to others there as well. He had a message for the woman at the well. Philip went to, to an Ethiopian man who was traveling through Gaza. He had a message for him. Paul had a message for the jailer of Philippi. God has a message for people. God has a message for you. God has a message for me. Never come to church. Never approach your word, the word of God, as if there's no message. There is a message for you. God, God says, I have a message from God to thee. Hey, tonight, we better be listening to the message of God. We better be listening to the voice of God. We better listen because if you don't listen to the voice of God, you might miss God's will for your life. You don't listen to the message of God, you could find yourself missing the boat on something there or finding a spiritual remedy for your life that you need. God has a message to people. They said the burden of Duma. So notice this out. We noticed something else here. There was this message to the people, this community of people. But notice this message had a title. The title of this was The Burden of Duma. The Burden of Duma. Now we know it's a message to Edom, but God purposely did this anagram. He moved the letter Aleph to the back of the word that would make up Edom, and he called, created a new word. The word is Duma. The word Duma means silence. Hey, in our English language, we get our word dumb from the word Duma. We dumb meaning inability to speak or to hear. There's silence there, and there's silence that he's talking about here. He's talking about. He has a message to them. He says the burden of silence here, the burden of Duma, and he's saying there's silence. I want you to, He's talking about here the heaviness of silence. The heaviness of silence. Hey, brother and sister Christ, there's the silence of the grievous. In Psalms 32, verse 3, Listen. He says this, When I kept silence, my bones waxed so through my roaring all the day long. What's he talking about there? Well, if you go to Psalms 32, verses 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose iniquity is covered. You know that verse there. It was David exclaiming and excited about the fact he had he had written Psalm 51 about the confession and contriteness he had to have towards his sin. But then in Psalms 32, verses 1 and 2, he's excited and he's enthused about being forgiven of his sins and being watched of his sins. Hey, brother and sisters in Christ, there's no cleaner feeling, there's no better feeling than know that your sins are washed away. And he says, blessed is the man whose sins are covered, whose transgression is forgiven, whose iniquity is done away. I mean, he talks about that. But then David goes backwards a little bit in verse 3, and he says, when I kept silence, when I just held it inside of me. And he's probably talking about during that one year of grievous That grievous time he had, he was holding back in his heart that he knew he committed some grievous sins. He had a man murdered. He took that man's wife. He married her. All the things David was holding that back. And David said this this is what he felt. He said, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. There's the silence of the grievous. And I tell you tonight, if you're struggling with some sin that you're keeping to yourself, if you're struggling with some sin in your life, something that you have not confessed before God, something that keeps recurring, you say, I've confessed it, but it's still bothering you. You didn't confess it and you weren't contrite. If you haven't got it right before God, you're inside of you, you know this, inside of you, you're roaring all the day long. You know you've got sleepless nights. You know it bothers you. You know you're stressed out. You know it's bothering you because the demons are working against you and saying you're no good and look at what you're doing and you know you need to get right but you're more worried about what the opinions of men will say more than the cleansing from God and I'm going to tell you tonight if you're in the fear of man, the fear of man bringeth the snare but who still putteth his trust in the Lord shall be saved and I'm saying to you tonight if you've got something that inside, you're roaring all the day long like David, there's the silence of the grievous I would make my way to the seat, I would make my way to the altar, I would shed some tears before an almighty loving God and get my sins washed away and get cleansed and purified tonight because, listen, you're just going to keep on roaring all the day long inside your heart. You're going to age inside. Look what he said here. He says, my bones wax old through the roaring all the day long. You, you are not be aging on the outside, but I'm going to tell you right now, if you're living with hidden sin and unconfessed sin and you're living in grievousness, there's the aging that goes on inside of you because of that. There's a silence of the grievous, but would you notice there's a silence of the grave. In Psalms 115, verse 7, the dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. Hey, you better praise God now because when that moment comes, they close that cask and put you in the ground. Your opportunity for praising God in this life are over. Hey, if you're going to win some souls for Christ and you're going to help make friend day a great day, not for the pastor, but for the glory of God. You don't do it now, you miss that an opportunity, and the Lord takes you home. When they close that casket, they say goodbye for the last time, and they bury you six feet under. Listen, there's a silence of the grave. You will never have another opportunity in this life again. There's a silence of the grievous, there's a silence of the grave. There's a silence of grace. The silence of grace. It's the point of men once to die, and after this is the judgment. Hey, listen, listen. You don't get saved. You don't get saved. Or let me put it this way for God's people. If our loved ones don't get saved. when they breathe their last breath. the reaches of grace cannot reach out to them anymore. There's a silence of grace. And so there's the burden of Duma. the burden of Duma. Edom knows God's judgment's on them. By the time this is written, they've experienced defeat at the hands of Saul in their history. They've experienced defeat at the hands of David in their history. And now they're at this place where either Ahaz or Hezekiah's king, they know something's coming down. The burden of Duma is the heaviness of silence. They said, man, you know what? God's got a message against the Babylonians. And God's got a message later on about the Arabians. A heaviness about them. He must have a message for us. And so they cry out. There's this concern. We see this concern. They're they're burdened. They're concerned. So there's there's a watchman. Notice it says, He calleth to me out of Seir. That's not God. That's a watchman from the Edomites. Who's somewhere on a precipice in Petra as we know it. Or Mount Seir. He's on this precipice. He's on this precipice somewhere, probably on a mountain peak. Probably like a half dome. Probably somewhere where, he, where his shout could be echoed and be very audible. And he has this question. Watchmen! Watchmen! What of the night? Watchmen, what of the night? What he's asking is, he's asking twice. He said, watchmen, he's calling out to, to the men of Israel, the men of God. The watchmen of God, who may have been Isaiah in this case. He's saying, "Watchman, how long is the night? How much longer do we have? What of the night?" What about the night? What of the night? In other words, uh, is the night night still going on? I mean, when's dawn coming? When's the sunrise going to come? What of the night, he's asking there. Listen, night is when there's darkness. He's asking the question, how much longer will the night go? How much more night do you see, watchman there? Night is when there's darkness. Night is when there's darkness. Listen, sin has a night. Sin has a night. When Saul sought advice from the witch of Endor, he ate a meal at her house, and then we're told he went away in the night. We're told of Judas when he took the sop from Jesus, he went out into the night. Sin has a night. In Proverbs chapter 7, we read about a youth, a young man a young, who's naive, who brought a bunch of money with him. I think he was a young working man, a young career man. And he purposely went down the street of a woman called the stranger in the night, a strange woman. She was a harlot. He went down the street. The Bible specifically says he went to the house of the strange woman. But this is what it says. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black of the dark night, things Bad happen in night. Sin happens at night. Sin has a night. I remind you tonight, sin is filled with darkness. Men love darkness rather than light. Sin has a night. Hell has a night. Hell has a night. Hell is described as a place of outer darkness. Weeping and gnashing teeth. Let me, let me correct something for you tonight. People, people say, well, I'll be with all my friends. You may hear their voices screaming, but you will not be fellowship with anybody. You're going to be in complete darkness. You're going to be gnashing in your teeth. Listen, you, you need to go have a visit of hell and ask God to open your eyes like he did with the founder of the Salvation Army to get an envisionment of what really happens there at night. Hell has a night. That man being in torment, he was in darkness. He was in torment. He could feel the burning. He begged. He could see from that chasm between him and God, but he was in a night. Hell has a night. Sin has a night. He asked a question here. This watchman asked a question from Mount Sierre. Watchman, what of the night? What do you see from your watchtower? Watchman, he says, listen, where I sit, all I see is darkness. Where I stand, I can't see anything. But what about you? What of the night? You've got trained eyes. You have trained ears. You're you're known as a good watchman. The Israelites were known as men that knew how to see well and listen well in the dark and in the day. Look at that watchman down here in verse 8. He said, my Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime. I'm set in my ward whole night's. Edom has heard the prophecies about about its future. And they know that their time is coming. They know that they're in the night. They want to know how much more night before dawn comes. When is there a dawning? Is the sun going to come up in the morning? They want to know that. They want to know what's happening. Hey, mind you, tonight, this evening, we have a responsibility. Sinners want to know the answer to the question. They may not know the question. They may not have the right question, but they want to know the answer to the question. They want to know what of the night. Now, there's a lot of questions that go around the world, and they're all the wrong questions. What rate of return did you make on your money? People want to know, are we headed to a recession? People want to know, when can we reverse global climate? They want to know, when are we going to elect a new president? They want to know, when are we going to repair the roads? They want to know, when are we going to cut down the trees? They want to know, when are we going to do this, and when are we going to do that, and what about this, and what about that? Hey, listen, the question is not, what's on my bucket list of places to see? And the question is not, what company is the next Amazon to invest in? Those are not the questions. The question is, what of the night? How much more night is there? How much is there? Listen. It wasn't the man of God telling the, the sinner that there was night. It was the sinner coming to the man of God and saying, What of the night? I know I'm in darkness. I know there's trouble coming on the horizon. What of the night, sir? Is there any hope? Is there any time? Is there light at the end of the tunnel? I'm telling you tonight, beloved, there is the dark of night. That man as a sinner was concerned. It's the dark of night. Listen, the night cometh when no man can work. But where there's a concern, what you notice, there's a communication Thank God for a watchman who was listening. Thank God for a watchman who was watching. Thank God for a watchman that was truthful. The watchman, I love this, he said, his communication, if you'll notice is in verse 12. The watchman said, the morning cometh. Hey, there's hope. The morning cometh. There's hope. The morning cometh. The sun comes up in the morning. Amen? Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Jacob wrestled with the angel in the evening, but morning came, and he was changed. He was a new man. His name was changed to Israel. Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb, but bless God, before the dawn came up, Jesus arose early in the morning. Amen. Hey, there's hope. The morning cometh. Hey, my favorite time is the morning. I love getting up in the morning. I love mornings. I may be a little tired and sleepy there, but once I get going, the, get the body going there, I love the mornings. I love to get my coffee brewing. I love the smell of coffee in the morning. You're saved if you love the smell of coffee in the morning. Amen. And I'm talking about the way I make it. I'm talking about taking taking two two, two spoonfuls, of San Francisco Bay French roast coffee, two parts of that, and one part, I'm giving you a formula here to help you tonight. You'll get saved if you do this tonight, amen. And so one part of Dunkin' Donuts, and you mix it up together, and I pour a craft of of water in that thing, and I've got enough coffee there, to man, I could send you to the moon, amen. I mean, it'll get you all wired. It's great stuff, and the smell of coffee permeates the room. I mean, I love the morning like that. I love my morning breakfast. You say, what's your morning breakfast? I don't eat bacon and eggs for breakfast. Let me tell you that right now. My morning breakfast, I look forward to that. I eat one boiled egg in the morning, one piece of cheese in the morning. I get I get an avocado out, eat my avocado. I'll have a beat during the day. Listen, I'm all ready to go. Man, Get out of my way. I mean, I'm energized and ready to go. I'm alert and waking and ready to go. Every now and then, I'll get a piece of wheat toast multi-grain bread toast, and I'll put maybe some a little bit of peanut butter on it, but that is my breakfast on I'll eat an apple with that during the day and some other kind of fruit during the morning, but I love the morning. I love the morning time of opening the Word of God and seeking God in the morning and finding God at my best. Amen? I love the morning hour and praying and seeking God in the morning hours. I love it before the sun comes up and getting alone with God and praying. I love it in the morning when everybody's still st- turning around in their bed and they're sleeping. I love to get up and read my Bible and get a time with God let God get a hold of me and whip me upside down. Amen? You know, I love the morning hour. I love when we go on vacation every now and then I look forward because the time changes sometimes we go to different parts of the country we'll go somewhere and I'll get up and I'm up before everybody else most people like to sleep in man I want to be up before the sun rises I love watching the sun rise I love being out there with my Bible in my hand and watching the sun come up I like watching the sun come up on the horizon I love sitting there on a beach somewhere somewhere, and people just being out there watching the sun come up and that's an exciting time for me I love the morning and listen this man who asked the question what of the night he was forlorn he was discouraged he was in gloom he was looking for judgment, and this man of God got up. He says, okay, you asked me what of the night. I'll tell you what of the night. Morning cometh. The morning's coming. Hey, the morning's a wonderful thing. I'm telling you this morning, he was giving him hope. He was giving him courage. I'm going to tell you today, you might be weeping right now, and you might be going through discouragement, and you might be going through a hard trial, and things may not be going your way, and you may feel dejected, but I'm going to tell you for every night you've got, thank God this morning that the morning comes up every day. Amen. Amen. It's a morning that comes. Don't go weary and reading your Bible, the morning cometh. Don't go weary living for God, the morning cometh. Don't go weary passing out tracts, inviting people to friend day and trying to win souls to Christ. Why? Because the morning cometh. Listen, there's hope, there's opportunity there. But he wasn't finished. In this communication, he said, the morning cometh. And then notice, and also the night. He said, Sir, the morning's gonna come. You've got a time to repent. You've got a time to turn to God. That's what he talked about later on. But he said, That opportunity's gonna be gone. He said, The morning cometh, but then there's coming the night. Let I me mean, remind you today, opportunities are a limited window of time, it's a space of grace. The morning cometh, but also the night. Don't spend your life thinking you've got tomorrow. Tomorrow may not come. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring. Hey, remind yourself today. Hey, you young married couples, thank God you got recently married in the last year, last several months, whatever there. You've got twinkles in your eyes, and you don't see anything wrong with your spouse. Praise God. Stay that way. Amen? Don't don't get changed and jaded by other people, okay? Stay that way. And you're thinking you're going to spend your life together. You're thinking you're going to have 20 years and 30 years and 40 or 50 years. But if you don't, I remind you tonight. The morning cometh, but also the night opportunities have a limited window of time the call of missions is beckoning but there's also the night the time to get saved is beckoning but there's also the night hey the call to surrender to preach is calling but there's also the night and then you'll notice in this communication, notice this. He said, the morning cometh, and also the night. Then notice, the watchman did something very interesting. He threw back at the man crying to him from Mount Sierra. He threw back at him the decision. He said, I'm going to tell you, What's of the night? Well, what are you going to do? And he said, if, if, if you inquire, inquire ye. Now, you asked me the question, he said, I've given you the answer. You've asked me twice, I've given you the answer. You ask me any more questions, I'll give you the answer. But he said this, return, come. That's a loving God, Amen. He's telling us, you asked about the night. You asked about the danger. You asked about judgment to come. And he, I told you, the morning cometh, but also the night. He said, now you've got to do something about it. He said, return, come. He said, sir, it's not too late for you to repent. Sir, it's not too late for you to come. Sir, it's not too late for you to reconcile. Sir, it's not too late for you to get busy for God. Sir, it's not too late for you to surrender to the gospel ministry. Sir, it's not too late for you to invite 50 friends, like one young man said tonight, to come to a friend day. It's not too late, but you've got to return. You've got to come. And listen, if we have found ourselves drifting... If we find ourselves way far from where we used to be, if, our, if, we've, if we've missed our bearings and we've gotten away from our doctrine from where we once believed and we've gotten away from our, our desire and our compassion and our love for God and our desire for souls and those things, we've gotten away from, hey, there's still time. You can return, come, return, come. He says, get back to the place you used to be. Get back to your prayer time. Get back to your reading time. Get back to your Bible time. Get back to time of getting saturated with the Spirit of God and being so saturated you're dripping with the oil of the Holy Ghost. Get back to the time we are excited about college ministry, excited about teen ministry, excited about adult ministry, and excited about Heritage Baptist Church, and excited about getting your family. Say, Hey, man, get back to place. The morning cometh, but also night. But while you're waiting, while the morning's coming, just say, you know what? I'm just going to come because that's the right thing to do. What an invitation. Return, come. Yeah, you're our enemies, but come on. Return, come. Then tonight, as we close, we see the responsibility of the watchman. We see the report of the watchman. Would you notice the reckoning of the watchman? A watchman has a high level of accountability for his role. He can't sleep. He's to be alert at his station the whole time. If you turn me to Ezekiel 33 very quickly, I want you to see the level of accountability. Did you notice verses 6 and 8, Ezekiel 33? But if the watchmen see the sword come, now I want you to understand and visualize with me, what does he mean the sword come? Watchmen... Watch for the glistening and shining of metal from a distance. The sun rays touching a saber. And he said, if the watchmen see the sword come, and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come, And take any person from among them. In other words, he had the opportunity to warn the city, but he didn't. He put them at risk. And the sword came, this invading nation came, and take any person from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity. But he said this, God said this, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. Verse 8, when I say, uh, go verse 7. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at his hand. Would you notice, number one, there is doom. There is doom. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. God says, as a watchman, if we don't blow the trumpet, if we don't warn the wicked of his way, his blood will I require at thy hand the concept and theology of a watchman applies to you and me today. It applies to me when I stand here at the pulpit and preach God's word. I need to preach it unadulterated. I need to preach it, thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord that came unto me. I need to preach exactly what it is to bring it down to our level. But it also brings down to our level as witnesses for Jesus Christ. We have responsibility of getting the gospel message to people. I think about the conception. The, the, the National Transportation Safety Board says those people perish because there is no watchman awake at the night to warn any of them. And God says here, watchmen, he said, Ezekiel, I've given you a message. If you fail to tell the wicked and warn them of their way, if you fail to blow the trumpet, their blood will I require at, the, at your hand. i wonder tonight, who do we need to blow the trumpet for? Who do we need to warn? Who is crying out to you about the night? We see the doom, but thank God tonight, if you look at verse 9, and then you go down to verse 7, uh, later on verse, uh, uh, let's see, verse 12 here, verse 13, what you notice here, we see the deliverance. On one end, there's doom, but on the other, there's deliverance. Verse 9, nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, now then you told him what to do, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. You're not responsible for their answer. You're response to get the message to them. Amen? Amen. He says, their blood won't be on your hands. And I'm going to tell you something tonight. I'm almost done. The prophets and preachers of the first century, that wasn't a concept for them. Listen to me. That wasn't a concept, that was a conviction. Because you get to Acts chapter 18, Paul's down at Corinth. Corinth was a tough city. It was a hard city. Paul got discouraged at Corinth, if you read the context there. And In verses 5 and 6 of Acts 18, it says, When Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit. I pray you'll be pressed in the Spirit. And he testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves, and by the way, every time someone rejects the message, they're opposing themselves as well as God. When they oppose themselves and blaspheme, he shook his raiment and he said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go to the Gentiles. Beloved, there's no option for silent witness. If we don't warn them, their blood is on our hands. But if we warn them, Ezekiel says, Thou hast delivered thy soul. Watchmen, what of the night? Watchmen, what of the night? The National Transportation Safety Board determined that 34 people perish because the watchmen were asleep. Wednesday, April 10th, 1912 launched the maiden voyage of what was known as the world's indestructible vessel, the Titanic. They said she can make it through an iceberg. There's no ship stronger than that. And the captain of the ship was so confident in the the ability of that ship He didn't tell anybody else this, but this was in his log. I'm going to try to get us from the Atlantic, across the Atlantic, from London, from from England, excuse me, all the way to New York City Harbor one day earlier than I told everybody. That's quite ambitious. The fourth day they were there, It was a horrifying day. That evening, the ship collided with an ice iceberg on the starboard of her bow. Her bow. It tore a three hundred foot plus. You imagine that three hundred foot plus gash across the starboard bow. The ship started filling with water quickly. They didn't have enough, they were so confident in the ability of the ship, they didn't have enough lifeboats for maybe more than just a little bit half of the passengers that were on that ship. Water was rising. The ship started sinking. These were in the frigid, icy Atlantic waters. They hit an iceberg. There were a lot of celebrities that were on that boat, on that ship. A lot of wealthy people. There were a lot of unknown people on there too. On the second berth was a man that was unknown to the rest of everybody else that was of high society on that ship. His name was John Harper. John Harper was a preacher of the gospel. He followed the steps of Charles Spurgeon. Sean Harper was a preacher of the gospel on that ship with his six-year-old daughter making his way because he felt so confident, as well as everybody else, that he'd get there safely. He was on the way to New York City Harbor to eventually make his way by train to Chicago, Illinois, where he was to take the pastorate of the Moody Memorial Church that Dwight L. Moody had started. He was following in the path of men like D.L. Moody and R.A. Torrey, John Harper was a soul winner. John Harper was a man of God. John Harper was on that ship, and as soon as they found out what happened, the captain knew who John Harper was because he was famous in England as a preacher of the gospel because he was falling in the footsteps of being being of the same mold as as, as Charles Spurgeon. And let me say tonight, preachers ought to be of the same mold. Men of God should be of the same mold. You don't need this deviation because the trends have changed and times have changed. If you've changed that, there's something wrong. You're either reading out the wrong Bible or you're talking to the wrong people. The captain called John Harper up and said, Mr. Harper, Reverend Harper, we're in trouble. We got a big gash in this ship. It's filling with water. We're not going to make it. We're trying to keep calm here. We don't have enough lifeboats for all these people on this ship. I need your help. He said, Mr. Harper, I want you to help give assurance to people and help us because we have to make some hard decisions. And so Mr. Harper was entrusted with among many other men of trying to help organize the people because basically what it meant that, that there would be separation of families and they would try to get the women and children on the boats first. And many women, when they found out what was going on, they were horrified. They said, put the children on those boats. I'll stay with my husband, if my husband goes down, I'm going down with my husband. That's such loyalty. They lowered the last lifeboat. Some around 1,500 people made it on those lifeboats. They lowered those lifeboats in the dark of night, in those frigid, icy cold Atlantic waters. The ship was going, was going up. It broke. It split in half. Hundreds, maybe hundreds of people fell overboard in the water that were left over on the ship, the remaining passengers. When the ship broke in half and made an, a noise that would be unforgettable, that the people were trying to get away in those lifeboats that were manned there, and then even or, there would be orphan children and just a few women. They heard that terrible noise of the ship breaking in half, an unforgettable noise. And they heard the cries of people falling off that ship, falling into those frigid icy waters in the dark of night. The very top deck. With John Harper trying to encourage people and telling people they better get saved John Harper filmed those waters. If you look at where that how big that ship was to fall down there if that didn't kill you if you survived it that would be a miracle. man was bobbing up and down in the water as soon as you hit that water you're Teeth were chattering, and you'd be shivering because of the coldness. They say most people may have died from being frozen before they drowned. This man, his heart is palpitating. He's in great fear, wondering if he's going to perish in this, just like everybody else that's in that water. And there's confusion, there's debris, there's fire in the ship that's remaining, the part of the ship that's remaining up in the water. There's all this confusion going on. Cries that were horrible cries. Out in the darkness. People in ability because of the darkness. The inability to see each other. They could hear each other but they could not see each other. Women wondering. I wonder if that's my husband that I hear. This man bobbed me up the water. Felt this big bump behind him. Boom. It turned him around. The man who bumped into him was John Harper, who was trying to stay afloat himself. They looked eye to eye, and John Harper, the face of an angel, looked at this man and said, Sir, are you saved? The man with chattering teeth said, No, I'm not. And John Harper said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. Somehow a wave separated the two of them. This man goes down under the water, comes back up. He's holding on to whatever debris he can to stay afloat. Seconds felt like minutes, minutes felt like hours. He's chatting away, he's cold, he's wondering, am I going to make it? He felt this thud again. It turned him around, it's John Harper again. Somehow, John Harper bumped into this man again. They recognized each other immediately, even though it was dark. And Harper says, sir, are you saved yet? No, sir, I'm not. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And after he said that, there was a separation. And the man watched John Harper go under, never come back up again. Amazingly, this man got rescued. And then on that survivor boat, the words of John Harper, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, burned in that man's heart. And there in that boat, while everybody else was chattering and crying, by faith he repented of his sins and by faith he received Jesus Christ as his Savior. That man wrote a track. It was entitled, I Was John Harper's Last Convert. Nobody knows. Did John Harper bump into anybody else? Did anybody else get saved in those frigid waters? Did anybody get saved on that top top deck before it went under? We only know in heaven. But John Harper made one determination, and that is this. I'm going to be a faithful watchman until my last breath. Will you be a faithful watchman? Watchman. What of the night? Watchmen, what of the night?